It's all right, man. We should just make sure to point out in the intro that you're, um, you know, playing chess with death right now. Yeah, it's a real beachfront moment. Okay, okay, okay. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story Men Podcast, episode 177. I am Clay Morgan. I am JR Foresteros. And I am Matt Mikovixen Lottos. It is episode 177. And you guys, I was born on this date in 1977. Did you know Whoa. that? So, just so what, Story Men um, listeners are clear, the day we are recording, not the day that this is in your ear holes. Is Clay's actual 40th birthday. And as you can tell by listening, I got him SARS for his birthday. Happy <laughs> birthday, buddy. Everything just starts breaking down when you're 40. So Clay's. I, I didn't know it was starting. literally. Yeah. No, I mean, they, that's, there's a reason they say over the hill. You just Now, Clay, you I understand you also you also start taking steroids once you turn 40. Yeah, I figured is now's that the time to start juicing. Chiseled physique? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta find a competitive edge. I'm gonna look into some HGH. I don't know, maybe some eBay vitamins. We'll see. Ooh. I was actually thinking. I was actually thinking, like, what would be all the fun ways to celebrate a 40th birthday? You know, I was gonna like run the 40. I was gonna drink a 40. I was trying to think of all the 40 things I could think of. (laughs) Listen to UB40. Isn't there? Isn't there a story? Trip. Trip. The 40 thieves of. What's that? Uh, would you read the 40th chapter of each book of the Bible that has 40 chapters? Yeah, I would. Good idea. That's only like what, 10 what? of them, probably. No one at me. I don't know. I didn't count. All right. I didn't prepare that. It might be more than 10. <laughs> I mean, JR, I would even pastor. read all of the 40th verses of chapters that have those, too. You that probably be to the 40th state. What was oh. the 40th state? I don't even know. Let me ask oh, Google. Man. Yeah, I would ask a. Uh, I can't say her name, you know, Amazon's uh, lady. Uh, Alexa. <laughs> she can't hear It you. was the Dakota. It was South Dakota. Oh, oh nice. I went there. South were split. You went there this year. Came on wow. together. Is the year to you be. turned 40, you visited the 40th state, Clay. That is I know, the, I know who the 40th president is. And you guys should, too. Was it? Um, I don't want to count. Was it Bush? No, Bush Reagan. Senior. Reagan, oh, it was Reagan, Reagan senior. Reagan was the nice. four double. Hey, so I don't know if y'all noticed this or not, but Stephen R. Donaldson loves the story, man. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we've gotten great feedback from the last episode that we had Steve on. Uh, hopefully we'll have him back when uh, the next book comes out, which if you subscribe to his newsletter, you know, he's renaming. But What's... in the newsletter, he shared our link and he said that. Uh, he got a little carried away, but that's what happens when people ask him intelligent questions. <laughs> intelligent questions he wasn't expecting, meaning he thought we yeah. were dumb till he met us. Yeah. So anyway, um, that is basically the so greatest is he day of my changing life. it from seventh to the seventh, or is no. he changing the name of the series? But have you ever been corrected so kindly? <laughs> yes, <laughs> every day. Oh. But no. always correct. That was kindly. That was so gentle and kind. I was really appreciative. That's sensitive. I pronounced the name of his book wrong for the entire episode. 
<laughs> Sounds like everyone does. He's difficult that way. So wait, yeah. what is he changing though? The the series title? No, 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 or no. The, the name of the second book was going to be called Knowledge and Evil. Oh. Uh, but now he said he's going to change it to The War Within. I want to say that's because of his conversation with us. Probably. <laughs> Clay, would you say the new title in your sexy, sick voice? The War Within by Stephen R. Donaldson coming that's, soon. Yes. That's exciting. I don't I know how they don't pick you to read the book. audiobook and uh, keep you sick the whole time. <laughs> Man, when I used to get when I used to get real sick in college, you know, I listened to a lot of metal and stuff as you did, Jr. And I didn't have the natural ability to scream like you do. But there would always be this like satisfying side effect of sickness where I could actually get real gritty with some of my favorite metal singers. Uh, so was- I would just like to clarify <laughs> that my screaming ability was not natural. I worked for over a year to cultivate that. Yeah, I, I'm sure wow. you had to. But you I know now, now you're right. I I definitely would like to just read books, and I want to be like the movie the movie phone guy now. Yeah, you could right now for sure. You should just stay sick for the rest of your life, and you, you got it nailed down. Uh, Coming gotta, today at NobleRogers.com, JR's article, okay. Tarantino and Star Trek. Well, way to ruin it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, news broke this week that may not go anywhere, right? It, 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 it seemed like it might have just been two guys talking that got picked up by The Verge. But uh, news broke that Quentin Tarantino pitched his idea for a Star Trek film to J.J. Abrams, and Abrams liked it. Now, this would actually be something that they would hand his idea off to writers and probably have someone else um, even direct it. Again, it's like super, super in the idea phase right now. It probably won't even ever happen. My question is, as people who love Star Trek, do you want Quentin Tarantino in the Star Trek universe? Yes. No. Gosh, yes. No, I want to fight Clay (laughs) to the death. Right now, while he's sick, on this topic. <laughs> Look, here's, here's I my think, concern, and then Clay can tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, Tarantino loves like the Harlan Ellison written episodes of Star Trek, which are spectacular. But Ellison's first thing was he wanted to show people like dealing drugs on the Enterprise and stuff like that. And eventually, he does great episodes like City on the Edge of uh, Forever or Edge of Tomorrow. I can't remember whatever it's called. The one where they go back in time to the mm-hmm. 1930s with the gangsters, which was an awesome episode. Mm-hmm. But I'm really nervous that what Tarantino wants to do is do a movie like that where they're time traveling back to the 30s and then do a Tarantino film that just has some s- Star Trek people in it. Oh, my gosh. Would that be amazing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Yeah, that episode is largely one of the most often cited favorite episodes for Trek yeah, it's fans. A great episode. But then you get to Star Trek Four when they let Leonard Nimoy like finally just run and do yes. whatever he wanted to do, and that's that was arguably movie. the best movie. Agreed. Um, <laughs> and and so Tarantino, you know, I was watching Kill Bill Volume One last night just by coincidence, and I was really sitting there thinking he might be my favorite like minute for minute director as far as just everything I watch, you know how people joke about how Kubrick like was a genius and every frame was perfect or whatever. Like that's, that's what Tarantino does for me as a satisfaction factor in film. And I just can't imagine what he might come up with. It would be so awesome. I love JJ Abrams. I love Tarantino. I get Simon Pegg in there. I mean, this whole thing just sounds amazing. 
Well, there you have Can it. I break the t- break the tie. Uh, I don't love Tarantino. I think he's about half as smart as he thinks he is. Um, mm. And I just don't. I mean, I I've been watching Discovery, and I don't love it. Like, I don't think that their their ideas of dark and gritty are actually what makes Trek Trek. And so I'm I'm not convinced that uh, that Tarantino would be good for the universe. That said, if Tarantino is interested in deconstructing Trek the way he's de- deconstructed other genres, I mean, I'd watch it and I would hope that it would have something interesting to say and not just be like weird and self-indulgent. So I'd give it a chance. I think it's Fair. more interesting than anything Disney is doing with Star Wars. Ooh, I don't know, man. I'm excited about the next movie. I'm not. Do, I mean, it, I I'm gonna go see it, but nothing interesting is gonna happen. Mm, that's not gonna on. get resolved in a good way in the last film. Boards. Mm. We should do an episode <laughs> on our favorite directors. Sometimes I've been thinking about. Uh, I've never really ranked my favorite directors, but that'd be an interesting conversation. All right, I got one more hot yeah, take for fun. you. All right, let's do it. Okay, bring it. Day of recording in honor of Clay's 40th birthday. I'm pretty sure that this was a sub something I had to read between the lines to, to really see. Uh, Time announced their person of the year. Did I win? So, no, that's what I'm saying. I think they did it in honor of your 40th birthday. Oh, okay. They didn't say that, but I I mean, oh, read okay. between the lines. That it was, was, it was, it was yeah, their yeah. subtext. So I'm going to read through the 10 nominees oh. and then tell oh. you who won. And I'm interested in your reaction. So uh, these are in alphabetical order. So. There you go. So Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO, mm-hmm. became the richest man in the world this year. Uh, Alexa, Surprise. what do you think of Jeff Bezos? She can't hear me. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Dreamers, all those people mm. that Trump's trying to kick out of the uh, USA. You just set off so many people's dots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't even think about that evil power of podcasting. Okay, we'll keep going. Uh, Patty Jenkins, director of Wonder Woman, uh, who broke like every box office record there is mm-hmm. basically this no year. relation to Leroy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the completely insane dictator of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Mr. Un, not big fans, but would love to have you on the show. Let us know if you're interested. <laughs> we would like to come do the show live from your palace. Mm. We definitely would not like to do that. Um, I would not. I will come live and connect <laughs> with the boys through the internet if you have internet signals. I'll there. go as far yeah. as Dennis Rodman. That's it. I've heard North Korea has the best, fastest internet in the world. <laughs> uh, so, it's moving on. rocket fast. <laughs> uh, Colin Kaepernick. The former oh, yeah. 49ers quarterback who started the uh, kneeling during the anthem movement. Strong choice. He just won the big Sports Illustrated uh, uh, Sportsman of the Year, the Muhammad Ali Award or something like that. Yep. The hashtag Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. All of the uh, people who have mainly women, but not just women, who have come forward uh, against people like Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. Robert Mueller, who is leading the investigation into uh, exactly what the relationship between Trump and Russia looks like. Crown Prince Mohammed bin uh, Salman, who is the uh, uh, he's part of the Saudi royal family who has been uh, looking more and more and more like a dictator. Donald Trump. uh, I'm not sure who that is exactly. Um, Some some guy that tweets a lot, I guess. I'm not sure. Um and then Xi Jinping, who is the president of China. Mm. So of those 10, Time Magazine chose. The winner is. They called them the silence breakers, which was the hashtag Me Too movement. 
so there's they, a precedent. There's a precedent for this, right? That they would pick not just one individual. Yeah, one year it was you. Yeah, the YouTube not year you, where Clay they, Morgan, but it was yeah. like the readers of Time. I, re- I remember that cover. Do you guys remember that cover? They actually no. put the person and they did like a. Um, it wasn't holographic, but it was like a reflective um, rectangle like stamped, so like that a mirror. yeah, so that you could kind of see your reflection in the front of the magazine. Oh, so yeah, I've been I Time Person well. of the Year once. That's right. Yep, that's right. You were, man. Huh. Great. Uh, so I bring that I'm up tied because with everyone else. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I just said I'm tied with all of everyone else. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> not the people that weren't born yet. That's true. Oh yeah, in your and face, the people young who won people. twice. Yeah, I mean. Uh, so, what do you think of this decision out of those ten? I think it's spot on. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great decision. For sure, the cultural upheaval and transformation that is happening from it has not come to an end yet. And it seems to be even gaining speed in some areas. So um, yeah, I think that's amazing. I was teaching for work yesterday and uh, my colleague who really is the brains behind a lot of what I get to present, we were talking about change for an organization we were speaking to. And we were talking about tipping points, you know, and he said, look at this cultural shift that's happening right now. And we were talking about how new norms are established. So not only all of the things that are being shaken up, all of the things that are yet to be revealed, but now going forward, these silence breakers are potentially going to reshape the entire way, entire you know industries and nations work. It's it's a it's, it's a powerful trend change that's going to establish new norms. I think for long term. Yeah, I've been really happy to see the amount of pushback. Like I've seen I've seen men saying things like, "Well, now I guess I don't even know if I'm allowed to hug people." And I'm like, yeah, right. "How do you, how do you how are you hugging?" And yeah, if you don't know the difference, then you should definitely stop hugging people. Like just don't take your pants off in the middle of the hug well, and you're probably okay. I mean, or recognize that it's okay if someone doesn't want to hug yeah. and mm-hmm. that it might be just nice to go like, "Hey, are you a hugger?" or "Is it okay if I give you a hug?" Instead of just assuming that everyone wants it. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways to negotiate that, right? But it, yeah. it, it is, I think you're right, Clay. It's a it's sort of a cultural watershed moment. It's a, a tipping point where women have come forward for years and made and, and made these allegations public, but but they've often been not believed and 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 often either nothing is done to the person who who had who had done these assaults or they were replaced with more people that kind of just looked just like them and did the same kinds of things and it feels very much now like there's been some kind of a tipping point everywhere except for in US politics so hopefully hopefully that cultural momentum continues to build um and and we see that it's interesting more. that they called them the silence breakers because i like you just alluded to this chair. Like, I don't know that people were silent before, but this time people said, actually, you're going to listen to us. Like, we're going to keep saying this in a, a bunch of people, you know, it wasn't like a, a handful of people. Like there were people that broke some of these high profile ones, but then like on social media, so many women were using the me too hashtag. And it, it really, yeah, it's a movement of people saying you will listen to what we have to say here. And it's not just an isolated case. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Well, I, I saved that one for last because our guest today is Dr. Sandra Glan, who is the Associate Professor of Media, Arts, and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, she's also friends with the Art House Dallas crew, so uh, Clay and I especially have had some run-ins with her all over the place. Uh, she's fantastic, and she has edited a new book called Vindicating the Vixens, which uh, goes back and reimagines what some of these women in the Bible who have been dismissed or sexualized or discounted uh, really had going on. And when I was putting together my pre-order incentives for Empathy for the Devil, I reached out to, to Sandy and she did a conversation with me on Jezebel and Bathsheba. And we talked about these two queens of Israel who have been sexualized. And it was a fascinating conversation. So as uh, when the book actually, her book actually came out, uh, I, w- I was quick to invite her back on Storyman in part because uh, it, the sales from the book are going to support a great cause, which she talks about in the interview. So uh, really excited for this conversation with, with Dr. Sandra Glan. Let's go ahead and dive over into that interview. For you, the listeners of the Storyman podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And we could recommend from author Stephen R. Donaldson, Seventh Decimate which we just interviewed Steve about last week. And on this show, we talk about how he gave us a shout out in his newsletter. Very excited. Anytime we get a chance to talk to such a legend and that is available on audible to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash the storymen. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash the storymen for your free audiobook. Our guest today is Dr. Sandra Glan. Uh, Sandy, welcome to the Storyman. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Uh, so one of the things we always ask our guests is to display their geek credentials. So what is something that you are a geek about? When I was working on my PhD, uh, to take a break, I would play Mario Brothers. Yes. Wait, what version of Mario Brothers? Uh, oh, gosh. You know, I... Mm, the one that said Mexico, okay. <laughs> oh, so it was bootleg. That's okay. Right, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. You don't have to explain it all out for, for us. us. Yeah, exactly. And also, since part of my PhD was in lit to to review for my comps, I was reading comic books, like classic yes. comic books. And I read so many of them that one of my colleagues gave me a comic book of great expectations as a graduation gift. Am I doing? Am I doing? Doing okay? Doing okay? Yeah, that's great. And 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 I also did used to be a regular blogger for Geek Embassy, so um, Geek Embassy side. So I feel like Geek credentials backfires on us sometimes. Like we're like, let's see if these people are geeks, and then we're like, (laughs) let's see if we're geeks. Uh, so, Sandy, you just yeah. edited a book that has just come out called Vindicating the Vixens, and it's about it's yeah. about women in the Bible. So I'm curious kind of to start out, why mm-hmm. did you choose the term vixens other than the alliterative yeah. properties? Yeah, well, the subtitle shows that it's passive, like so-called vixens, it's because it's um, revisiting sexualized, vilified, marginalized women of the Bible. So we're not setting out to, like, vindicate Jezebel, you know, who was treating people unjustly. We're looking at women like Bathsheba, which we know a lot more about power differentials now. And if the king is, you know, sending people to take her, 
um, yeah, we need to revisit some of those kinds of stories where they're probably women have wrongly been vilified. Yeah. So I was, I guess that was the follow-up question. Why, why do they need to be vindicated? Is it, is it the way Mm -hmm. the scripture tells the story? Is it the way we interpret them? No, we're just looking at how we have typically brought a a Western slash European, often white perspective to the text. So for example, we tend to, in my women's Bible studies, we would study Sarah, but never Hagar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas, you know, the black church very often is looking at Hagar, like, just some of that, but also um, we know a lot more in terms of archaeology and, and first century backgrounds. It's helping us see that not only how we wrongly sexualize them, but in doing so, we've missed the point of the narrative. Like you take a Rahab and people think that the point of the narrative is that God can change a hooker. And well, yeah, he can, but that's not the point of the story, you know? Right? And so... Yeah, it's just not the not where the author of the book of Joshua is going. And so when we see some of these women in Jesus' genealogy, the first thing people think is, well, you know, God can redeem bad girls, which he totally can do. It's just that that isn't the point of the story over and over and over again. There, there are seven, there are six other deadly sins we need to think about. Um, and so we're kind of trying to take a look at some of what we've done wrong and where are we missing big themes in the text pretty woman Two, the sequel starring julia roberts is yeah, there you go <laughs> hey uh sandy I'm, I'm a little behind this week but did i hear something about how you're uh, using the sales of this book to support something we are yeah so all of the authors uh, there are 16 of us agreed up front that all the uh, profits are going to benefit International Justice Mission. For those who are vindicating the sexualized, vilified, marginalized uh, on the front lines. So we we can't all quit our scholarly jobs to do that, but we can use our scholarly chops to to try to support what they're doing. What's his name? Gary... Egg. Uh, yeah, I don't Huggins. even know, honest. It's, yeah. it's, that's the organization, though, the, the IJM, right? Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. So we thought it would Thanks. be fun. One, yeah. of the, one of the things we like to do on the Storyman is rather than just go through the whole book, because we want people to hopefully be intrigued enough to go out and pick up the book, support IJM and the work that they do, is kind of do a deep dive on one particular character. And this is especially good because this is a collection of essays that you edited in any case, yeah. a number of different voices being brought in. Uh, so we thought it would be fun to just do a kind of a deep dive into uh, the character of the woman at the well who is in John chapter four. Uh, yeah. So uh, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the story just in case people did not pause sure. to go back and refresh themselves? For sure. Absolutely. So, so giving the big picture of the book of John, John is arguing that Jesus is God. And one of the stories he's using is one where he encounters this woman where he knows things about her that nobody could possibly know, uh, like a stranger would never guess. This woman has had five husbands, and you know now the, the man she's with isn't even her own husband, uh, probably having to share him in a concubine sort of situation. And that, that would be rare enough that you just wouldn't guess that. It's not like guessing, I'll bet your name is, uh, you know, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, you know, when everybody in the world is named Mary, right? Like he's, he's giving a detail that, 
that just you wouldn't know. And it sort of establishes that he's omniscient. Like he's got these powers that normal people don't have. So that's sort of how it's functioning in the, in the book. The challenge is, so Jesus is thirsty, um, and typically Jews would go around Samaria because it was like, you know, it's considered sort of compromised territory. And, but he had to go straight through it to, to, cause he's on his way, his way to, um, Jerusalem. So he stops at the heat in the heat of the day around noon at this well, and he strikes up a conversation with the Samaritan woman, which is pretty unusual because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew and Samaritan Jew and Jews didn't talk to each other. So that and alone is kind of unusual, but then he asks her for a drink and um, tells her, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew the gift of God and who, who's asking you for a drink, uh, he would he could give you living water. She's like, you don't even have a bucket. Like she's not cluing in <laughs> on like that. He is not talking on a on physical level, and and then she's like, you're you're not greater than Jacob, are you? Who like who gave us this well? It's like a, kind of a famous well that kind of her identity is is in how famous this well is. And, and she's, you know, Jesus tells her everybody who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty. And, you know, we'll even, we'll even well up in life. And she's like, I want some of that. And he says, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, actually, you've told the truth. You've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your own. So you said the truth. And she's like, I see you're a prophet, you know, our, our, and so she starts getting into a theological discussion. Our father said you had to do, you know, worship on this mountain, and your people, the Jews said they had to worship some, you know, on Jerusalem, and Jesus, like, he's not buying the bait, like, which side are you on? He says, you know, a day is coming when those who worship will worship the Father and Spirit and truth, and um, salvation is, but salvation is coming from the Jews, and and she's, anyway, long story short, she says to him, I know Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. And Jesus says to her, I'm it. And she, Jesus actually never gets a drink out of the deal. She leaves her, <laughs> leaves her stuff at the well, and you know, he, she leaves him thirsty, apparently, um, and, and goes and tells her whole village, and they come back. So that wasn't a very, that wasn't a summary. That was like so, a long version. Sorry. So that's okay, Sandy. That's great. It, I mean, it shows your familiarity with the story for sure. So tell us a little bit, you were just mentioning how sometimes the lens we're reading through. So uh, oftentimes our critiques and our commentaries have come from a white Western uh, kind of perspective. What does, so traditionally in the Western church, how has this woman been portrayed? What are some of the assumptions that have been made about her? Yeah, well, since the reformers, uh, and I, you know, I, I buy into the reformers' tradition, but really before the reformers, she was viewed differently. But since the reformers, she, we've read the five husbands as being this woman is a serial monogamous who is committing adultery, or you know, she can't keep a husband because she is just messing around, and now she's just living with some guy. And, but, you know, she just, she keeps divorcing her husband because we, we live in a world where women can easily divorce their husbands. So seen as like loose morals, she's making a decision. Uh, it's a, a lifestyle she's chosen to get rid of her husband's 
and she's the the vixen. That's right. And it's even often taught <laughs> that the reason she's at the well in the middle of the day is because other women go in the morning and she, she's got to go all by herself because she's got this reputation. Totally extrapolating into the text. I've been in the developing world. Like the well is full all the time. It depends on how much water you can carry because it's heavy. So, oh. you know, even if you have a buckets that are big enough to carry it, if, if you're not a super Hulk, you got to go back a few times. Okay, Sandy, I'm nervous now. I've, I've included that in one of my books and now I'm nervous. What am I about to learn? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, this is why we should never publish till we're 85 and then die. Right. Um, <laughs> till we actually have yeah. something to say. Exactly. Well, thank God you're still learning. And yeah, we, you, like, sometimes I think I need to just cover my foot with chocolate because I'm going to put it in my mouth. But, uh, it may as well taste good. But it's, yeah, that's just part of continuing to study. We go, well, well I was wrong about that. Um, but I'll bet you weren't wrong about the main thing. I'll bet you still got the point of John and where he was going with his message. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, he was saying that women are terrible and that Jesus is good. Is that right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. if we're going to try to vindicate the woman at the well, like where do we begin in that? Like what, yeah. what are, how do we, uh, I think sometimes people don't even realize the assumptions, particularly like if you've right. been raised in church and you've heard that sermon. Yeah, yeah. Maybe or even been yeah. taught it in youth group or whatever. Probably yeah. used to support the Billy Graham rule uh, that Jesus yeah. broke, like whatever. Um, yeah. Like where, like where do we even begin? Um, yeah. Where do we even begin trying to question our assumptions? Or I guess maybe how did you do that in this book? Yeah. Well, so what started for me was as I'm studying first century backgrounds as part of my PhD program, and I'm looking at 100 BC to 180. I come across you know, just come face to face with the the stats on women and divorce. And the most divorced person we have a historical record of is Pompey. And he divorced, he had five wives. So he had the most, you know, recorded. He had two times he dumped wives, two times, uh, I think they died. Yeah, two times they died. And then the, the, the last wife outlived him. And so like the most divorces, you're never, never in anywhere in the written record are you finding somebody who divorced somebody five times. And then you, if you think about like women as witnesses of the resurrection, people say things like women weren't like witnesses in the court of law, which is absolutely true. Women weren't just walking into the courts and representing themselves. And so how complicated it is to try to get your dowry back and you have to have a man, if your husband's like, the person who's representing you and he has a problem with it. It's, it's just not that simple. So if you think, okay, if a woman can't, if we start with that, just that historical detail, if a woman isn't dumping five husbands, what's the alternative? Either she is such a, you know, a lousy wife that she gets dumped five times. Unlikely that the third or fourth or fifth husband would actually take that risk. Right. Um, then you look at, well, what is the number one cause of death for men in this culture? And it's war. Number one cause of death for women is childbirth. The number one cause of death is war. And the emperor, I think it was, I think it was Augustine. It might've been Nero, but uh, I think it was Augustine passed a law that, that, you know, relating to how many women children had. And during this is an incentive for them to have children because he had to have five children per woman to keep zero population growth. 
So all of that says men are dying left and right in war. So, so what do you assume then is probably happening with this woman who's had five husbands? She's been through a lot of grief. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that's the most obvious cultural, uh, historical contextual assumption to make, not that she's, you know, a, a woman of loose morals who. Right. Exactly. So someone in the first century hearing this story would have probably made like, well, probably some of those husbands died one way or another. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then when you look at the detail of the one you have not now is not your own, a Westerner's like, well, if you're living with somebody and you're not married, you're living with some guy. But if you transport your brain back to first century Palestine, the Romans and the Greeks didn't do polygamy, but the Jews, interestingly enough, did. And she's living in Palestine where you've got polygamous relationships. And why would an probably older woman who's been widowed a number of times have to share because she's got to eat. Mm. And so she's probably the co-wife of somebody who's willing to take care of her, but she's going to have to be the one to go fetch water, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So if then, if you rewind through, okay, she's probably been through all kinds of heartache maybe dumped a time or two and, you know, been through at least two, probably three or four deaths of husbands. And now she has to share a husband. When Jesus tells her that, you know, you've had five, and she says, you're a prophet, and ends up saying, she reveals that she's looking for the Messiah. She's waiting for the Messiah. Another detail we very often overlook. This is a woman who's actually spiritually hoping I know Messiah is coming. The one called Christ, whenever he comes, he'll tell us everything. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like as you're laying out the story, I realized that my assumption was that the woman was not uh, of her age was that she was maybe middle-aged, maybe. Um, but that's an assumption that's actually tied to the assumption of her sexuality. Like that she's, so that's really fascinating, actually, that that assumption on my part is affecting other things in the way I'm looking at this woman. And it could she could be elderly, potentially, uh, having been through all these husbands. Yeah, and she's found someone to care for her. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I've also uh, – so I, I did my master's thesis on Nicodemus in John 3 and the woman in John 4 and had to read a lot of commentaries on uh, John 4 and on this woman. And I was amazed how many times um, commentators assumed that her bringing up the Messiah was trying to like weasel Change out of subject, Jesus yeah. calling her on her. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, which again, I think to your point from earlier, when you actually read what's going on there, and if you assume that she actually does think Jesus is a prophet and then turns to ask him this important religious question, uh, that, the, that we have introduced the idea of shame into right. the narrative, uh, yes. when John doesn't necessarily, there's nothing in the text that necessitates that it's there. Um, yeah, I, that, that was a, that was a fascinating insight for me. And again, challenged the way I had always been taught the story and always had read the story. Right. Exactly. And, and so had I, 
and and so have most of us. And to me, the most the most troubling implications are that we teach that the way then to approach a lost person in need of a savior is to bring up their sin when we've just met them hmm. instead of compassion, instead of, you know, what, what's your heartache that, that Christ can meet. It, it, and like, there's just so many ramifications. Um, but, and I, I don't think anybody, you know, did it out of an evil heart. It's just, again, we're Westerners bringing Western assumptions to the text, which is why we need men and women and Arabs and you know, Africans. And we need as many different communities as possible, helping us revisit some of these texts and strip off our assumptions. We need each other. So Sam, you know, Sorry, I just, uh, I just, I just sort of had a realization as I was uh, sort of processing everything we've been talking about. Uh, Matt, you, you brought up that you've always assumed this woman is at best middle-aged uh, yeah, I think my assumption always reading through this was that there would be some kind of sexual tension in this encounter, which, again, I think is evidence of probably the evangelicalism that I was raised in. Again, yeah. I mean, not not joking about the Billy Graham rule, but joking yeah. about the Billy yeah, Graham yeah. rule, where, yeah. where it said, like, a man and a woman in a room together automatically have some kind of latent attraction. Exactly. Um, oh my gosh. And again, yeah. we read that. We read that. onto. I read that onto this story, yep. you know, and so that. So I make an assumption that there was something that had to be overcome or mitigated or that the that Jesus saw the woman as an inherently sexual being because that's how, again, our culture teaches us to view uh, the opposite gender. Yes, it is. Always. Absolutely. And it's kind of cyclical, don't you think, Jr. Because, like, we're taught this story, and so it's based out of the Bible. Therefore, you read it into the Bible. Like, you know. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it just it reinforces itself and it feeds yep. on itself. Yeah. Um so maybe zooming out just a little bit and getting at something that's probably undergirding a lot of a lot of the book. Um what does it look like for us today to read a book that was written in a patriarchal culture? Where, as you said earlier, right, we have a completely different understanding of power dynamics today, right. um, even. Right. Uh, what, like, sometimes the problem is with us, as we've just observed, but sometimes mm-hmm. also the, the problem might be in the text itself. Absolutely. So, so one of the challenges I constantly have to bring up to my students is a reminder, as, as I'm teaching the seminary context, is a reminder, okay, the Word of God is inspired, but the culture isn't inspired. So don't assume, for example, if you see the patriarchs and they've got, you know, three wives or two wives and two concubines and 12 kids, that doesn't mean that God therefore smiles on, you know, these multiple spouses in a marriage. Um, just because Abraham did it doesn't, you know, Abraham lied about his wife, too. I mean, just everything that he did doesn't mean that it should be emulated. And I, I think we, I think often, for example, when we're talking about work and employment, we'll quote the slavery text. It's like, have you ever talked to a slave? Like, like you're, there's a huge difference between I could walk off the job at any time. So I'm choosing to stay because I want, need the money versus I am owned 24 seven. My master has access to every part of me. And I, you know, so in that context, to be told, obey your masters, then you have to pull the camera back and say, is he endorsing slavery? Of, of course not. But sometimes we read it that way. Um, 
but we are we are so powerful in America that we can walk off the job. Um, and even our envisionment of slavery is to assume that there's some agency. But if if these texts are written to completely powerless people, and we're saying, why didn't they have an uprising? Why didn't they? Why didn't they blow it off? Why, and you're like, you've never felt that powerless, have you? You never actually been that powerless, have you? Because you wouldn't suggest that. You would understand those authors are talking to people who it would be death to them, death, physical death to them if they were to quote rise up or whatever. So, but they're but they're not responsible for that person who's raping them. That doesn't mean that they've been sexually active if they've been raped. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense, but but you know, even when they're when the slaves are told to submit, I think I think he's basically saying you are being sexually abused, but that doesn't mean you're responsible. Hmm. You are can you, not. Can you you are not that? guilty. Like, what do you mean by that? So, it, like, slave give, give us step by century, step. Okay, slave in the first century is owned, including my body, okay? Like, if you're yeah. a slave, male or female, your master has access to your body whenever he wants, or she in some cases, but usually it's he. Um, and so, let's say you're a Christian, and you're thinking, you know, the, the Christian moral is, you know, the, the pagans, it's been really clear that the pagans who come to Christ are specifically told— Please, you know, no more doing the idol worship thing, no more sacrificing to idols and immoralities, you know, your your body is not your own now. But if you have this slave owner who's who is taking advantage of your body, you're helpless in terms of you can't run away, it would be it would be death. Then I think when you read that that you are to submit, that it's not that you're supposed to enjoy it or you're supposed to uh endorse slavery, it's, it would have been read as, you're not responsible for that. Like, you're not guilty of sex if your master has access to you. That's interesting. It's hard to unsee so much of what we see, but it really helps when we bring in international students, when, when my husband and I go to Kenya and are, are in very rural settings and hear some of these verses through the eyes of people we're with for the first time, it's really very helpful. Sandy, you've, you've mentioned several times how uh, other perspectives have, have shaped you and helped you understand texts in these other ways. Could you talk a little bit more about that more directly? Yeah, I think we need all eyes on the text. Here's an example. We need physicians, for example. So the, uh, a, a translation came out in the last five years uh, that takes the, the story. There's a story about a woman who's had a menstrual flow that's been going on for 12 years, and she's considered ritually impure, unclean. It's, it's not a moral thing, but, but ritually, she, so she doesn't have access to like some community, to some worship places, and um, it's often translated that the menstrual flow or the flow is translated as a hemorrhage. Okay. Well, you know, I asked a nurse just yesterday, so how long can you hemorrhage and survive? She goes, eh, three to six hours, depending on the bleeding. Right? <laughs> so, but if you're only living in a monastery, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you hemorrhage for 12 years, that's a bigger miracle than being healed. So, yeah. um, but if you're only ever in a monastery with only men, and you don't even have any women in your life, let alone, you know, interaction with a physician, 
you might translate that word from the Greek into to German or whatever. You might translate it as hemorrhage. But when a doctor comes along and reads your text, says, yeah, you need to, you need to translate as, men- as menstrual flow. <laughs> um, so, so we need all eyes on the text. And, if, and so if we're just going to have, you know, the, the white, typically white European scholar interpreting everything for us, then, um, you know, we're missing out on the tradition of Africans, for example, like Augustine was from Africa. Um, but Christianity has a much broader Middle Eastern, you know, and then you look, you look in the Orthodox Church in the East, when they read the story of John chapter 4, her, they give her a name, Fotina, and she has two grown sons, and the tradition is that she being um, going to Africa and taking the gospel to Africa with her sister, and then later under Nero, they are martyred. There's this whole huge tradition around this woman that if we're in the West, we don't, you know, we typically don't do orthodoxy there at the capital Therefore, we don't even know that any of their version of the text that they've had, you know, records of since second, third century. So we need to read broadly. We need to ask questions of people that are very different from us. We need to hire for diversity not because we're trying to meet a quota, but because we recognize that we're blind without the help of people with different perspectives. Can I, can I ask you a question about that? I can. Uh, uh, um, so one of the things that I notice is uh, I was talking to one of my African-American friends who's a pastor, really pretty well-respected pastor, good friend. And he was saying that he's just now coming to the realization that his way of approaching scripture was so altered by his experience of seminary in that he was taught to approach it as a Western white man. So, uh, and and he's just now coming to the place where he's looking at scripture through his cultural traditions in a different way and discovering all these things. He's like, I never saw this before. So what, what do we do when our, our main passageway to theological teaching and pastoral positions and even staff positions in churches it sort of has a gatekeeper that is the white Western viewpoint of scripture. Like how do, what do we do there? Well, I think, I think it's encouraging that some of that is changing. It used to be in the seminaries, even in the, even in the last 10 years, I've seen a huge shift in the seminary in that we used to be very siloed and we were actually kind of protective of our own departments. You know, we were convinced my department is the one where people really need what I'm bringing up. It's the missions department. People really need to make sure they get a missions perspective. And the theology department, you know, we make sure they got a good systematic theology. Now we're starting to do a lot more cross-pollinization. And, for example, a class I teach in Italy, um, I always have a co-teacher from a different department each time. Last time it's spiritual formation. Next time it's going to be the theology department for that very reason. Um, but also, I try to always make sure that my teaching assistant is uh, a male who is much younger than me. And I encourage my male professors to have TAs that are women that are a different age from them, just simply because they're, we're bringing different things to the text. Um, and so I think, yeah, in a sense, the seminary is the gatekeeper, but if the seminary wasn't there, it would still be the church. We would still be... Right. Uh, if you think about the megachurches, a lot of them have their own institutes, but same problem. You know, we're we're reading the same commentaries from the same people, and there's nothing wrong with reading those. You read them. I'm sure you benefited no. some. Um, but but 
but we should also be reading books by dead Christians. We should be reading books by Eastern Orthodox Christians. We should be read. We should be interviewing our African American friends and in our friends from Tunisia. One of the chapters is looking at Vashti, who is the queen in the story of Esther, who basically gets deposed when her husband wants her to, to come basically display her beauty in front of all his drunk and brawl men at friends at, at a party, and she won't do it. And typically that, in women's Bible studies in the West, has been taught of, about a woman who didn't obey her husband, therefore she you know, lost her great position. And we had an African-American woman tackle that chapter, and she, what she brings to the Esther story is a, a, a perspective that is familiar with the with the habit of passing in the Jim Crow South, of if you're super white, black, passing yourself off as white, and it means cutting yourself off from your family if you marry somebody and don't want him to know. Um, and what it and the studies that show what that does to the psyche of a person to just basically live a lie. And she then points out that's what Esther was doing. When Esther stepped into Vashti's role, nobody knows she's Jewish, but Mordecai, her cousin. And when, you know, a law kind of is, is on the books that we're going to eliminate the Jews, part of why it gets passed is because the king doesn't realize his own queen is a Jew because she's pulled off this charade. And Mordecai says to her, basically, who knows but what you've been you know, brought to such a time as this. And it almost seems like he might be hinting, and I could out you. <laughs> um, but, but she chooses to sacrifice her neck for her people. And the text, up to that point, just calls her Esther, Esther, occasionally the queen. But once she puts on her royal robes, goes in, outs herself, you know, reveals who she is and stands up for her people, then the text constantly calls her the queen, the queen, Esther, the queen. It's like she lives into her true identity. I would never have seen that hmm. and, and all that dynamic without a sister in the faith who brings a very different perspective. So some of it is just having more friends that are different from us, scholars that are different from us, like loving difference instead of just tolerating it. Sandy, so part, part of what you're talking about, right, is this communal hermeneutic, like we come together to find the meaning in scripture in, in community with each other, which I think is really beautiful. Um, I think in a lot of traditional conservative Christian, at least the worlds I've run in, um, we're told that systematic theology is the one tool that is correct for approaching scripture. Can you talk about that a little bit? Is, uh, obviously, systematic theology is useful, but is is it is it legitimate to say it's the only way to approach the text? Well, it's certainly very um, narrow. <laughs> very yeah. narrow. Um, we'll put it that way. Um, so, my husband is the East Africa director for East West Ministries. In fact, he's in Kenya as we're speaking, and we're, we're dealing with very very rural areas where we're finding the most rural Christians we can and helping train them to take the gospel to the very last people that haven't been reached that are usually very nomadic. So we're talking about no running water in, in those situations, usually. Um, and um, typically their approach to the Bible is storying. Right? And, but tip, a typical uh, approach we use in the West today is we, we camp so much on 
on the logic sections like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, uh, which are where basically the Apostle Paul, who's a great person at rhetoric, but he's he's lying out a lot, laying out a lot of abstract themes like what is love and what is unity and um, you know and and our friends our friends in Africa are like yeah that's 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 not the best storytelling. We want to go back to you know take me to the rape of Tamar, take me to the to Noah's Ark, where as often in the West we're taught that well the narrative stuff you got to be really careful about drawing really any application from that. Uh, it's, it's, it's really where Paul's super direct that we can, can be sure. Um, and it, right. it's just, it's a very narrow time in history. I, I, I am thankful for the training and I use it every day. I just think that, that it has to be included in a very big toolbox of lots of other kinds of tools. Right. It's one tool for approaching a really complex communication from God. Yeah. And, and my friends who are in systematic yeah. theology would agree. I, yeah. I think for me, it was I, a big, it was a big, uh, what sort I want, a big realization that systematic theology doesn't really help me read narrative. And, and then not, actually not like well. yeah, the, you're tools, right. yeah. the tools yeah. that it takes to interpret story well are just, a, as you said, a completely different set of tools, right? And the beautiful yeah. thing yeah. about uh, scripture is that it invites us to get this ever-expanding toolbox uh, for interpretation. Yeah. And I think one of, the things, one of the things I'm really impressed by with Vindicating the Vixens is that so many of these tools are on display uh, through the various voices that that you collected to to put into to this uh, this whole book, so uh, I think anyone Thank who you. is interested not only in the topic of the book but in in the act of and the art of interpreting itself would find this a very uh, a challenging in the in the best way, like a very mm. helpful and challenging, mm. uh, inspiring mm. work. Thank you. Uh, you know, I had it when we first set out, we thought we were vindicating vixens, and certainly all the chapters do that. But as I was sitting there as general editor and these chapters are coming in, I was shaking my head in a good way because each of the authors did the hard work of saying the so what. They didn't just leave it at, you know, you were wrong, nanny nanny boo boo, <laughs> you know, now you now you gotta fix it. Right. But it was we've been wrong about focusing so much on this that we've missed the main point and gone on to say, what is the main point? And what emerged was this consistent God choosing the, the, the person like Esther who has no social power, who is ashamed of being Jewish because it's such, it's such a minority and saying, that's who I want to use here. It's going into Jericho and saying, you have these male spies who witnessed the amazing miracles of God. I'm going to choose a female Canaanite who, oh, by the way, she's a professional sex worker, but she's going to give a way better testimony than those spies ever give. Okay. Like, there's this habit God seems to, it's like he goes out of his way to pick the Virgin Mary who's a teenager. Mm-hmm. When you're expecting her to, him to choose, like, Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, who's, like, in the Holy of Holies offering a sacrifice on the altar. That's who you expect him to use. Like, they're religious pros. And he's going out of his way over and over again to use a Hagar who's been thrown out by Sarah, who's the daughter of promise, you know, married to the son of promise. They've got a slave that they picked up in Egypt. She's not the person you expect to be naming God. You're the one, the God who sees. She gives him a name. 
um, like over and over this theme in Scripture of God, of Christ reaching out to, to a woman who's probably been through all kinds of heartache, but he knows she has hope in the Messiah. And every other place when people say, like John the Baptist even says, you know, go ask Jesus, are you sure you're the one? And Jesus doesn't send back with, yes, I'm the one. He sends back with, uh, what does your Bible say? Mm-hmm. You know, you do the math. But to this woman, the only place he does it, he comes right out and says, I'm it. That's beautiful. Well, we are about out of time. Um, would you be mm-hmm. Would you be interested in participating in our pop culture pick of the week segment with us before you go? Yes, I would love Excellent. to. I would love to. It's a little geeky. It's a little geeky. So my <laughs> husband and I have been uh, binge watching the Father Brown series. Oh. And G.K. Chesterton wrote the Father Brown series, and it's I can't think of any other show that has a celibate Christian as the star. Huh. Who's like, like he, he's got a robust theology uh, that's, influencing all the justice he's doing all the time um and how interesting that's just just so interesting to us so we're enjoying that oh that's fantastic uh matt what's your pick they're mysteries yep i i love the father brown mysteries um my pick is the movies you you may you may these are pretty famous but the movies of hayao miyazaki if you haven't seen these they're animated films a lot of famous ones my favorite one so far, I haven't seen them all, but my favorite one is Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, so these are Japanese Howl's movies. Okay. Oh, yeah. They're really great. What's interesting How is the storytelling. Howl, Howl, Howl like. A, oh, it's H-A-Y-A-O. That's his first name. And then his family name or his given name. His family name is Miyazaki. M-I-Y-A-Z-A-K-I. Uh, he's the most famous uh, cartoonist or uh, filmmaker in Japan who's still living. He he is still living. Uh, so he has a, a long list of movies that are really famous and popular there. Howl's Moving Castle is my favorite, probably because it comes closest to hitting the Western style of storytelling. But some of his other movies are really fascinating. Uh, so like uh, Spirited Away is one, and there's another one. Uh, called My Neighbor Totoro, which I watched that one, and I was like, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> My kids watch it with me, and they're like, I don't know, man. Like, there's a cat with lots of legs that you can ride inside like a bus, and I was like, I don't know. Um, so it's just a different style of story, but they're beautiful, beautiful movies. Uh, or if you need something that's not as weird, that his most recent one, uh, and was supposed to be his last one, was called uh, The Wind Rises, which is about... Uh, the guys who are building planes and then world war two comes and their designs start being used for these kamikaze pilots and kind of them dealing with all of that in the midst of their relationships. So the, they're beautiful to look at regardless. And most of them have been translated with uh, dubbing done by professional American actors. So you can listen to it and get the good acting as well. So amazing movies. Well worth your time. Nice. Clay, what, what about you? Uh, yeah, I was actually thinking when you said Father Brown, Sandy, I was thinking of the Father Dowling Mysteries. Remember those with Tom 
was it Tom Bosley and, and uh, Tracy Nelson did that oh, show? Oh, wow. Yeah. You're taking me way <laughs> back. Yeah. Late 80s. There might be one other celibate pro tag, but uh, it's a good pick. So when I get sick, I tend to lay around and watch documentaries on Netflix. And I found a great one this week called The Farthest Voyager in Space. It is a 90-minute documentary on the Voyager 1 and 2 that were launched simultaneously in 1977. And since since then, they have now left the solar system. Um, and famously, Carl Sagan had them turn it around and take one last picture of the entire solar system as it was leaving, and we see the pale blue dot photo. Um, but it's the it's these it's these great thinkers and in science imaging experts who had to figure out how to do this and. Not only did they recount what they knew about the planets as of 1977, then they take you like planet to planet as each of these flybys came and all of the ways they discovered pretty much everything we know about the planets in our solar system. Um, A lot of it has come from Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. So it was just fascinating to hear these individuals talking with that archived footage. And it's on Amazon. It's on Netflix. It was a really excellent documentary. I enjoyed it a lot. Nice. Uh, Well, my pick is brand new. It is Batman issue 36, which just dropped this past Wednesday. Uh, And if you're not current on Batman, the current writer is Tom King. And he has really highlighted Batman's mortality and his humanity. And one of the ways he has done that is by really bringing uh, Batman's relationship with Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, to the fore. And he fairly, uh, fairly famously got them engaged a few months ago. And so the most recent uh, story arcs have been dealing with, for instance, how Talia al Ghul reacts since she thinks that Batman is her beloved betrothed. And so... <laughs> this new this new uh, issue 36 kicks off a new story arc called Super Friends and the whole issue is about the fact that Batman has not called Superman to tell him that he's engaged and of course Superman already knows. And and so it's it's really an exploration of the friendship between these two and Lois is talking to Superman about it and Selina is talking to Batman about it and and I won't spoil how it all uh, how it all ends to kick off the new arc but it was if you watched Batman v Superman and you thought, gosh, I thought they were supposed to like each other, uh, this is the comic for you. It does such a good job of highlighting <laughs> why their differences make them such good friends and their mutual respect and love for each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, both Lois and Selina are fantastic. Uh, it was just a great, great issue. Matt, you read it also, right? I did. I, what you just said is one of the things I love. Like Lois Lane and Catwoman were both fully uh, developed characters who you saw why Bruce and Clark would be in love with them and why they would lean on them. Like they were really nest- They were giving insights into the character of their husband and their fiance and pushing them to be better people, which I thought was just beautiful. It was really yeah, well so done. So it's in comic stores right now, or you can wait a few months for the Super Friends trade to come out but man it was a it is a short read is a great read it left me with a big smile on my face uh who would have thought batman could make me believe in love but uh, there you have it. who's who's writing that tom king tom king is his oh, name. okay yeah uh all right that is our pop culture picks of the week we'll have those links at story or at uh, norvarogers.com in the show notes for this episode uh sandy before we go uh how can people follow what you do online um, my website is aspire, A-S-T-I-R-E, and the number two, aspire2.com, as in aspire to the quiet life. 
Um, and they can get the book at Amazon or wherever books are sold. Excellent. We will put uh, links to all that in the show notes at NorvaRogers.com. You can also reach out uh, at Facebook.com slash The Story Men. Sandy, thank you so much for being on. It was fantastic to get to hear about your work. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed talking with you. Great question. Excellent. We will be back next week with another great episode. Until then, thanks as always for listening and uh, take care of yourselves out there. there's a man rather sometimes there's some men and I'm talking about the story men here and I know what you're thinking those are some tall fellers I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined but we're missing the point sometimes there's some men and you want to know what these hombres are about well I won't say they're heroes they're just the men who are right for their time and place these men, uh, shoot, I lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way.